Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individual spreading value in a variety of industries and bodies to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insights to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Peter Tuggerall. Before we get to today's episode, a very happy new year to each and every one of you. I hope you have a fantastic 2021. And as we say on the show, continue to back yourself, continue to believe, and continue to be 1% better every day. In this episode, we take flight with Rob Hango Zada. Rob's someone that really inspires me. I think this, the things he's done in his life and the way he goes about life is super interesting. And in this episode, he was very candid about his upbringing, about his career, about his family, and obviously more recently, the success, success he's had with Ship It. Um, so hear about Rob's upbringing in Sydney to immigrant parents, his passion early on and curiosity that led to him pulling apart toys, a journey that started quite average, but it ended up becoming the ducks of his high school, being a business analyst and doing some technology roles early on, which led to a full circle back to technology as he is now, um, doing some dodgy roles as he calls it, and putting it all on the line and taking risks. Hear a fascinating story about thinking twice before sending an email when he sent something that he perhaps shouldn't have. Starting Ship It with a number of personal priorities on the way with the new baby and a home mortgage. And then earning a grad salary about seven years into the Ship It story and how he talks about the fact that a 10-year journey can often be an overnight success. And some really cool snippets including meeting rooms at the Ship It office being named out some of Sydney's cafes and a lot of other golden nuggets and insights to help you truly be 1% better every day. Are you ready to fly high? Rob, welcome to the show, mate. Really excited to have you on. I've, I've followed your journey for some time and it's a fascinating story, which I'm excited to unpack for listeners. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Vidit. Great. Well, let's let's start off from the early days, your sunrise, as I call it, um, your childhood and your upbringing. What, what was that like? If you, if you reflect back on it, what were some of your sort of interests growing up and what was the influence of family? Look, um... I guess it's not often you reflect on your childhood in, 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 in podcast form, but I guess I'll try and do, do the question justice. Um, you know, uh, life started with humble beginnings. I was born in Sydney, um, in, in Sydney South, actually, uh, down in Bexley. Um, my parents, both being migrants to Australia, had met and married in Australia. Um, my father had worked for a tobacco company and had been working his way up in management. And... Um, Basically, my my childhood was very uh, very much a middle class suburban Australian childhood. Um, growing up in the Shire um, in in Sydney's uh, south, which is God's country, um, you know, spending <laughs> a lot of time you know riding a, a push bike around the suburbs, you know, causing havoc here and there, and and um, you know always trying to to invent things and build things. I think during my childhood, you know, the main thing that I always used to get in trouble for was pulling apart all my toys. Um, and I would always pull apart the best toys that I had. And the, the, the thing I got in trouble for was I never put them back together. Um, <laughs> and I guess I always tried to understand why I did that. And it was more to understand the way things work and how they were built, uh, just for no better reason than just to appease my own curiosity. 
Um, and I guess the mm. other big thing was, you know, with a neighbor, um, you know, going back to when I was probably about seven or eight, you know, attempting to build a time machine because we were uh, inspired by um, Back to the Future at the time, I guess, um, <laughs> and, and trying to find all the materials we could in the bush to put something together, which seems stupid in hindsight, but um, ambition's a hell of a thing, right? Mm. Very cool. And, and what, what was what was your personality like in, in, in high school and, and sort of some of your passions growing up? Were you into the study or were you sort of more interested in, in experimenting different things? Oh, look, it's pretty safe to say that in my primary schooling and early high school years, um, they didn't hold out much hope for me academically. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's just put it, put it in a nice way. Um, but I guess as I started to get my head around things a little bit more and kind of um, got into like my middle uh, middle years of high school, I started to really realize I had an aptitude and passion for for, for learning. Um, so at that stage, you know, whilst I was um, still, you know, doing the usual things teenagers do, um, I guess I put my head down a little bit more and tried hard. And I think one of the fortunate things of, of that period of my life was I got the opportunity to join um, an advanced mathematics class, right? And I think it was probably the first moment that I realized what a growth mindset was all about. Um, so I took the leap and did that. And from there on in, it kind of accelerated. I ended up in three unit math and then taking on a whole bunch of other extracurricular stuff in parallel to that. I remember I was um, coding HTML, uh, self-taught, you know, building websites uh, for myself. I think I was a big South Park fan. So creating some fan pages and learning how to create animated GIFs and things like that. So I was very much the, the nerdy type. Um, that kind of stuck around in the bedroom, kind of playing with things, DJing, you know, a bunch of other things. Um, and then eventually kind of, um, you know, found my path and, and kind of, um, you know, more more of kind of an inclusive, um, you know, teenager trying to sort of, you know, make it in the world. Um, I found myself, you know, kind of sitting in, in, in lots of different circles of friends and, and really trying to bring all people together. And I ended up... Um, you know, as school captain of my school and also uh, making ducks of the school as well by the end of it. So I'd say all in all, uh, it started really badly but ended quite well. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. And, and and I imagine back back then entrepreneurship and, and technology obviously wasn't as um, relevant as it is today in terms of the media and you hear about it. What, what were your influences like to get into that space? Did you have any sort of role models growing up or was it your parents that sort of gave you that sort of belief that you can – you can try things. I think it was it was really this. Um, yeah, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid, right? Oh, so right. the big the big thing for me was like, you know, how do I how do I seek fame and fortune, right? I think that was always like a motivating factor and wanting to prove others wrong and do things a little bit differently to the way that they've been done previously. Um, so, you know, I was, I was always a little bit more entrepreneurial uh, than the average person. I think what, what drove that wasn't necessarily a role model, but was more around that freedom of creation and invention and what that can bring. Um, and so that's what kind of motivated me. And I guess the other piece was, you know, growing up in a household with a, with a, with a dad that was um, working long hours in a corporate career, traveling quite frequently. It meant that he wasn't home very often. Um, and probably like not looking to replicate that same model, but trying to do things a little bit differently. And I guess, you know, the, the, the bug of entrepreneurialism kind of hit me a little bit earlier. Um, 
I had a few false starts in high school trying to start up my own T-shirt brand, you know, doing my own designs and printing them off and trying to sell them to kids at school, Um, you know, hustling a few other things here and there. But I never really stuck at anything for more than a little bit of time. Um, And, you know, at one stage, I think I found myself selling CDs of of mixes that I kind of made with songs on the internet to DJs and stuff like that. Um, But nothing really ever stuck. And um, I think... The, the main driving force um, beyond high school was really getting a corporate job and being successful. Um, so put my head down again and that's when I entered university to, to kind of study up and, and get into a corporate job. Mm, and that, that's actually a good segue. I was going to ask you that. Like looking at your LinkedIn, you studied a, I think, business information technology degree and then did some business analyst roles. Can you, can you share how that came about? Was that, again, a conscious decision and was that, again, Going back to what you said earlier about your passion for technology and coding. Yeah, I mean, look, I really loved um, technology, but I also loved business. So kind of the two main courses I did well in in high school were um, computing or computer studies back then when computers were very few and far between mm. in labs um, and um and, and commerce and business studies, right? So I kind of wanted to always, you know, bridge the two of those worlds together and space I wanted to get into in, in uni was really around, you know, potentially engineering or um, even at the time the internet was still a relatively new thing, so studying the internet and <laughs> internet businesses. Um, but I guess when I started asking questions, I found out you could apply for scholarships and I thought scholarships would be a great thing to, um, to achieve. So I kind of put my name in the ring for a couple of them and I made my way into the business information technology degree over at New South Uni here um, on a co-op scholarship um, sort of program. So that that afforded you a couple of things not only um you know i guess your tuition fees came down somewhat through scholarship but also the ability to um to work as you learn um at that time in my life i didn't know what i really wanted to do um so trying to connect study with practical job with a practical job was really important to me um, and so one of the added bonuses of, of that particular degree meant that I could do uh, industrial work placement so I could try before I buy really. Um, so over the next four years in my uni career, um, I went on to be a business analyst at a couple of um, blue chip companies and I fast realized that I didn't want anything to do with technology from a business right. perspective. Um, so I defected completely and applied for my first grad job at a FMCG business called Procter mm. & Gamble. Oh, fascinating. It's funny how it, it's come around full circle now, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I think the driving force for me at the time was I uh, I think the, the happy middle ground between, say, hardcore business and, and technology was a stint I did for uh, Booper, which back then was known as MBF. I was working in their e-business team at the time, and, and I remember very well. I was a business analyst working on the um, uh, the sign-up flow of, of how to get new users online, and I found a lot of my time was spent trying to understand the motivations of the individual and trying to replicate behaviours on on a screen, right? To try and um, to drive certain behaviours and incentivise behaviours. And what what I got really passionate about at that time was consumer understanding and then, you know, designing outcomes based on that understanding. And so the the job I applied for and got was was in the consumer market and knowledge space. 
uh, with Procter & Gamble, which is really the engine room of insight that feeds innovation um, and, and helps drive strategy and brand and all that sort of stuff. So that really motivated me to, to sort of go deeper into the, the business of understanding why people do the things that they do and how you can take advantage mm. of that knowledge. Yeah, very, very cool. Now, now, before we go deeper into your hustle and work, which, which we'll do shortly, I'd love to touch on some of your magic moments. And, and I, I really like this segment because I think that was one of the reasons to start the show was to unpacks people like yourself around what are some of those moments they look back on whether they were painful learnings or experiences or people you've met along the way that you sort of go that was a important moment on that journey um are there any that stick out to you that that you could share i'd imagine from your journey today there'd be many from a business point but also from a personal point are there a couple that stick out that that could be handy for the listeners look i think um as a, as, a, as a young kid, I really wanted to get into the workforce as early as I could. I guess I was a high achiever then and, and still am today. But I think some of my magic moments were putting myself out there also meant I got, I got some dodgy gigs, right? So I remember um, joining a mate of mine just after we'd finished high school in that in-between break thinking, okay, um, you know, he'd heard about this opportunity to become a salesperson and you could earn a hundred grand a year really easily on a commissions only basis, selling telecommunication systems to small businesses. And so I thought, yep, gonna, gonna hammer that one. So I spent three weeks driving around my own car, paying for my own petrol, door knocking every business in the Western suburbs of Sydney, uh, getting told off and kind of moved along and everything else in a very cold outreach process to try and get people to change their telephone systems. Um, suffice to say the magic moment for me there was really understanding how hard it mm. is to make a sale. Um, and also, you know, when you put yourself out there, you can't always expect to get the easy money. Um, so I think that was probably one big one. Um, I guess beyond that, um, I think there was, you know, probably a, a moment in time where you start to realize, um, that you have certain capabilities which set you apart from other people and unless you really hone in on those skills or experiment and explore further you really won't um make the impact you want to make so like i kind of came to a fork in a road at a certain point and we'll probably get to that a bit later in the hustle and the journey but i think you know meeting people um abroad when when traveling and stuff and you just start talking and understanding their story and you understand that um you know in order to create something amazing and big you really need to to put it all on the line and risk um put risk in the way and ambiguity in the way of something which is otherwise a clear path um so i remember meeting somebody who owned a security company on on a boat <laughs> one time in fiji randomly um, and that kind of really inspired me to, to take more risks in my my personal and, and kind of professional life um, but just from, from those chance meetings with different people and understanding their stories and trying to replicate their levels of success. Yeah, and, and would well. you say, because I think one of the things that fascinates me and I've heard you talk in other podcasts is given that now you're a business owner and a business leader, would you say early in your career when you were at Procter & Gamble or even Unilever, you were trying to build a toolkit of skills that you said, okay, I want to build these skills so if I start my own business, I, I can scale it pretty, pretty quickly and, and have an understanding end-to-end? Would you say that was part of your thinking early on? Never consciously, right? So I'm the type of person who likes to um, look at goals, maybe, you know, five to 10 years out 
but then think very much in the day-to-day. So there's never really a long-term plan that kind of connects everything together. So it's the way that I liken it is you kind of know the target or the destination, but how you get there, you need to vary it based on new information that comes. Um, When I was sort of very early in my career, things that I was doing was really about um, building my toolkit and working very much, you know, to, to kind of hit the next milestone. So when will I become a people manager? When will I become a leader of a function? Uh, when will I be able to get that pay increase? It's very much optimizing for that day-to-day in the early part of my career, but inadvertently I'd built that skill set that I needed to then take me further in my journey hmm. in business management, right? And, and, and during that time, whether it's in your career as an employee or even now, is there a painful learning that sort of sticks out for you? Um, that ego was was really important to go through, but perhaps in the moment was the end of the world. <laughs> um, look, I think I'm the type of person mm. who shoots from the hip quite a bit. Um, if you if you take me for one of my biggest fails of my career, which I'm happy to share, um, it was the moment I actually got got the job with Unilever, but I didn't quite get it just yet. Um, I had I had a verbal offer. And on the back of that, you know, when I was working at Procter & Gamble, mm. it's a cardinal sin, right, to go and join the big competitor. And I'm very much a people person, so trying to make sure that all my relationships stayed intact and I made sure I made a graceful exit. I knew the moment I announced my uh, resignation to go and join the competitor, I'd be marked yep. from the building. So I spent some time, you know, really crafting the message around my departure and, and kind of, you know, pulling an email together. And I guess the biggest lesson learned, which is more of an administrative ever, which every, everybody probably does, but I didn't at the time, I'd included every single person I wanted to send this email to in my two box. <laughs> so you can just imagine what happened next. I got halfway through writing this email uh, that I was going to you know, put, a, put on a scheduled send uh, and I got interrupted and I freaked a little. Instead of alt-tabbing, I pressed Control-Enter on a PC and that means you send an email. <laughs> Uh, so I inadvertently ended up resigning from my job before getting a formal offer uh, at the competitor and the nightmare that ensued a very young um, Rob Hangozada was a little embarrassing to say the least, but that was uh, probably a big learning for my career. I think the, the key thing that I took away from it, A, if you're going to put yourself out there, be ready to risk it all. But the other thing is, you know, Think twice before you act, particularly when it comes to one of these one-way door decisions, right? Um, so I think I, I learned a valuable lesson that mm. No, that's a, that's a really good one. I think attention to detail is always important, right? That's one currency that never expires. <laughs> ne- never a strong suit <laughs> from what is for it, but, you know, it still sits there in yeah, the back of my mind. No, that's life. a really good one. I think for listeners of any age can definitely apply that. I think if I look in my life, I, the learning there for me was write the email first and then put the recipients in, so... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that's the main yeah. takeaway from this podcast. Right, that one. Very down. good. I, I imagine one of the other magic moments would obviously be the the transition from which I think was when you were Unilever, and then you had this side hustle called Ship It, which which you grew into the business it is today. Um, what was that? What was that transition? One, I guess, what, what was the magic spark that that led to that? And two, what was that transition like? Because I, I think. If I look at just from my career, having worked at some corporates but also startups, that transition can be quite hard. Where you go from a really well-oiled machine to uh, to a to a building which has, I think, as you said, ping pong tables as your boardroom tables, right? How how did you? What was that yeah. magic moment like in terms of the transition from a mental and sort of personal point of view? 
Look, it was um, I probably it probably help if I kind of ex, you know color color in the detail a little bit around um, you know the the side hustle and how long it stayed a side hustle, etc. So, I guess you know Ship it was founded over a beer with two mates. You know that's that's kind of the the, the genesis of of the problem space we decided to solve for, um, and we started that very much with the view to say okay just as you start any other business right oh yeah in a couple of years we'll flip it for a few mil we'll make some coin and we'll uh we'll solve a real problem and i think as we started to really uncover the problem a lot more we started to realize hey there's something in this that we really need to solve and it was really exciting and exhilarating in that early period right so with a startup what often drives you at that the outset is solving the problem so understanding the problem testing your ideas, creating things, really trying to mold something from scratch by understanding a problem space. Um, and that, that, that puts the fire in the belly to get something out there into the world, right? So when you flip that and look at your corporate career, it is more about, you know, you know what's coming on your day-to-day, you know what needs to be done, you know what's expected of you, you know what goals you need to kick. Um, and I was never one that was overly obsessed with... Um, overreaching i was never the type that that ever you know stayed back ridiculous hours worked on weekends or even thought about work before going to sleep very much the person that rocked in at a reasonable time um got the job done well um you know if i needed to stay back seven o'clock was a late night but i never did work on the weekend never did my email to set my week up or anything like that i just didn't have that level Mm. of commitment in a corporate career but i found myself really passionately attracted to the space that we were solving with ship it you know here's this problem which is sitting there neglected. Yeah, everyone's trying to solve it, but nobody solved it. And that is, how do you grow e-commerce and how do you evolve the way that people shop and consume um, by improving logistics? And that that became all-consuming. So, you know, I remember at the time, um, I was recently married, <laughs> recently mortgaged, as was Will. Um, he wasn't married yet, though, so he was a little bit more fancy-free but had a mortgage. Uh, so risks and, and kind of the stakes were high and my wife um, had just fallen pregnant at the time with our first child. So here I was working my way up the corporate ladder, doing quite well at Unilever, um, you know, mortgaged, married and with a child on the way. And then here's this uh, little uh, side hustle on the side called Ship It where every minute we spend you know, building the business, you can see a measurable impact that can come as a result. So we did this for about 12 months. And I remember the final moment that kind of tipped me over the edge um, was sitting in a planning session. So we were, we were planning our media briefing session for our media brief for the next 12 months. And we needed to run a bit of a planning session to write the brief. And that planning ses- session consisted of a really bright and brilliant mind. Um, you know, at, at really, you know, some really high points in their careers, you've got marketing directors, you know, insight managers, finance directors, and, and the like. So a group of eight people. And we sat there and we deliberated and debated for around three hours of the, the semantics we were going to use to describe mm. what needed to be done in the media brief. <laughs> and at the very same time, I remember, you know, getting early customer emails and things like that uh, regarding ship it and thinking to myself, if I just spent three hours solving the problems that, you know, were discovered within the ship it domain space versus three hours articulating a media brief, I could have a measurable impact on this world. 
I think that was the tipping point for me in thinking I've got to commit to something mm. full time here on Ship It. And I guess the catalyzing moment was um, actually my business partner who was more bullish than I was. So Will sat me down and kind of said, right, what's it going to take for us to pull the ripcord here? And we kind of agreed on a plan and it was a five point plan. So one was a working and functioning product. That was number one. Uh, number two, it was um, paying customers. Number three was investment. Number four was a, a enterprise prospect, yeah. so a marquee client. Um, and I guess the fifth one was um, confidence in our abilities to run that business. And so once I ticked all five boxes, I really had no excuses. And so that brings us to May 2015 when we finally pulled the ripcord about 12 months after we founded the business. Mm. And you, you talked earlier about the the financial side of it where we obviously you had a personal life and a lot going on. Um, mm. a, a number of previous guests who have come on who've sort of done a similar transition where they might have gone from a fixed salary to sort of working for themselves have talked about going to their financial mm. advisor and working out the maths and going okay i've got 12 months worth of savings so i can survive for the next 12 months was there a moment like that for you where um you sort of did that pros and cons and went okay if this doesn't work out this is sort of what i can fall back on or did you go all in and go oh, this is going to work either way <laughs> I wish I could say I was very prudent and I did all the relevant planning. Um, look, I, I, I think the reality was at that point in my career, and I guess for Will as well, we kind of had a general driving feeling that if we needed to find another job, we could. Yeah. Um, we knew we were taking a punt um, with Ship It and it was either going to go one of two ways. It was going to be a complete failure and we'd have to go back, you know, cap in hand, asking for our jobs back or finding a different one. Or it's going to go really well, but it's going to take a little bit of time. So I guess we did the sums and we thought, okay, what's the bare minimum we need to service our lives? Um, and we kind of went in with that position. And so what that meant was we left our jobs to no salary, uh, which was an interesting stretch until we got investment, finally secured the investment and paid ourselves our grad salaries. <laughs> so basically we said to ourselves, if we can afford to pay ourselves a grad salary, that can help us with general living expenses, but everything else comes out of the savings. Mm. Um, and so that was the starting point. And uh, that went on for more time than I ever thought it would take. And I think if I had known how long it would take, it probably would have been a very different decision. And I'm glad that I didn't know because I went in very naively, very ignorantly um, on the, the financials front and I was motivated even more to solve the problem. Mm. It's funny you say that because one of the things I just wrote down to ask you is is if you look back at the Rob from then, would that Rob have advised anything for Rob today that, that perhaps would have actually turned out better? The first thing I would have said to myself was, why didn't you leave sooner in that case? I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So. <laughs> Absolutely. And the second thing was, you know, um, I think I, I protected my family and friends specifically from investing in the business. I guess the feeling that I had had at the time was, you know, I'm wearing the financial risk on behalf of the, the family. There's no need to go in and kind of look for funding there. And what that meant was you're a little bit more beholden to external investors. And so therefore things like valuation coming to mind, dilution and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, the best advice I got early on in the journey was the longer you can hold out for investment, the better your prospects are because you're growing your traction in market 
better traction means better metrics, better metrics means greater valuation. You get into that product market fit moment. So I think the, the Rob of today would have looked back on myself and said, right, back yourself, be confident, have conviction and take the risks. Um, but at the same time, as you do say, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I probably, I probably wouldn't change it all. I probably would have just left a little bit mm. sooner. And, and and tell me, there's a lot of listeners that that tune into the show that that might be at university level, or maybe they're frustrated with their careers and they want to make a switch. Similar to you, do you think looking back that I think six to eight years you had in FMCG really helped with where you are today in terms of just I guess a general understanding of the world, but also skill set. Because if I compare that to, say, a founder who wants to start a business straight out of uni, would you would you recommend them to first get some stripes in the corporate world? I actually had the same conversation with um, uh, with actually a uni student the other day, and it's quite an interesting one, right? Like, I think of of my generation, it was very much the done thing: go to uni, study hard, get a career in a blue chip uh, company, and work your way up, right? Uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship is uh, not common. It's few and far in between. So, you know, you're going to need to go and, and get a real job. But I guess when I was at uni, um, there was this little company called Atlassian that did the same degree. And, you know, they were constantly asking us if we wanted to be interns at their company or go and join them as grads. And Will and I always thought to ourselves, who the hell would go and join a startup, Right. We're going to go work for IBM. We're going to work for Deloitte. We're going to work for all these great companies and learn because, you know, we're going to be on a hundred grand in no time. It's going to be amazing with them. Wear suits. We're going to go to the city. You know, it's all the things that motivate you a little bit differently. Suffice to say, the friends that went and joined at Lassie and at that stage, uh, they, they don't really need to work again right now. So there's that, that, that was a real learning point for, for Will and I. But separately, I think the advice that I'd give to anyone is, Commercial acumen and understanding business management is not something you learn by reading, something that you learn by doing. You can do that by starting your own business, but without strong mentors around you or strong conviction in the idea, you've just got that one extra thing to learn and do. Um, So if you don't have somebody who's got that skill set to bridge you, I'd say it's a very high risk to do coming straight out Mm. of uni. By all means, doesn't mean don't do it. If you've got enough conviction about the idea or the problem space you have, my view is very much to jump 110% into that problem space to see if you can solve it. If you're just obsessing about an idea, I would say you've probably got the wrong motivation, right? Ideas tend to fall on deaf ears and it means that founders are less inclined to pivot because they get pot committed to the idea and they cannot figure out why the idea can't work. Those that obsess about a problem space will forever change their idea. So they'll always think about new and different ways to solve the problem. And that's what drives a successful long-standing business. So I'd say if you've got an obsession about a problem and you know it's real and not being addressed and you're, you're in uni, surround yourself with the right mentors who have the skills that can drive you into it. Mm, absolutely. And I think, well, if, if I look at one of the things from my career has been, I think people can complain about corporates having a lot of process and structure, but I think it teaches you how to execute well, oh, which like amazing. you said is, is important in a, in a startup. Amazingly so. And, and to build on that point, I think the one thing that Will and I have in common is we've got 10 years in corporate under our belt. And what that means is you know what a company should look like at scale. You know what successful processes look like. You know what leadership looks like. Um, you have a sense as to what you know HR practices look like. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. Um, 
there's there's nothing that can replace the value of that unless you build it around you in people that you hire, right? Um, by all means, we don't have all the answers and we're not the sharpest tools in the shed, but the, the tools in our kit bag that we had staying in business meant we could define a performance um, perform, high performance management process for, for culture. We knew what an interview process should look like. Um, we knew how to kind of do remuneration plans and commission plans. Um, we knew how to negotiate a lot better in deals. Uh, we knew how to organize and structure our work. Um, so even that basic skill set of writing a plan and executing that plan and measuring the outcome of that plan um, was all informed by our corporate careers. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the things that I love asking, I think people talk a lot about scaling a business, but not enough about scaling their own skill set, right? And then you've been running Shippen now for what, close to seven years. How, how have you scaled your own self in terms of learning and development? Have you had formal mentors or coaches or courses you've been on? Like, how do you continue to develop and learn? Absolutely. Um, the common thing between Will and I is we always um, we, we, we always know the problem space, but we don't quite know the solution space as well. So what we do is we surround ourselves with people who have been there, have done it, and can provide the input. We synthesize and then we follow with our best of intentions what we believe is the right thing to do. So with that in mind, what I do and what Will does is we surround ourselves with mentors, people who have done it before. Um, we seek out peers uh, that are doing it right now to understand how they would solve it. I mean, look, very early on in our journey, our investors included people who brought different things to the table and we did that very intentionally. Um, we could have just had one, you know, grey hair angel investor take the entire round, but we decided to to limit that, and we involved seven different people. Now that makes a lot of people cringe because what that does to a cap table mm. <laughs> later on in life is something which you shouldn't really do. But what that did in the early days was meant we had somebody who had skin in the game who knew finance. We had somebody who had skin in the game who knew retail. Somebody with skin in the game who knew logistics. Somebody with skin in the game at new private equity markets you know, somebody who knew sales and we could assemble this consortium of people to guide and advise us along the journey um, free of charge, mm. right? Because they were committed to the journey as well. Outside of that, I think professional development is super important for any leader um, or any founder in business. You need, to, you need to learn the right way to do things um, because otherwise the time it takes you to learn it yourself is just far too long. So hack for that timeline. Um, that started with, I guess, um, informal mentors, and then now I've progressed into, um, you know, professional coaching. So professional coaches are people who have been there, done that before, but are actually trained in the ways to give you advice and drive you in the right direction. Um, so that's been really invaluable for my executive development as well. Mm, fantastic. Um, now, if we just touch on your hustle again for a second. Um... I think one of the things I like love asking the guest is, say if you're stuck in an elevator and someone goes, Rob, what do you do? How, how would you describe your role at Shippet? Um, I say that, you know, the, the, the way that I usually answer that question is, um, I guess I help retailers ship items to their customers easily and uh, at a lot cost than what it would usually take. But the job that I do today is really very much about driving the commercial vision and the strategy and what our design should be. So how we're gonna go about doing that is really what my job is. Um, 
I do take on different jobs during the day, so I wear many hats, but generally it's more the commercial success of the business and the future product vision for the company is really mm. what I own. And, and is there a period from this journey to date that sort of sticks out for you as the most maybe energizing or fun period in the last seven years? No doubt. It was year one. <laughs> year one and two. I think that is the quite, true hustle. <laughs> yeah, the true hustle, right? When. Um, you know, we're, we're literally, you know, staying up late at night, mocking things up in Photoshop, you know, jumping on theme forest on Envato and downloading themes and building a WordPress site, you know, Photoshopping business cards and going down to office works and printing them off, you know, um, rocking up to events, you know, trying to, to, um, you know, look bigger than you are, you know, trying to create <laughs> those processes and really validate your idea. That's the most exhilarating part of the startup journey. Because you're really, you're really figuring out if you can think it, you can do it, you can start to shape the world that you live in. Very much that Steve Jobs mantra, right? Mm. And you start to realize you can sit in the same room up against the juggernauts of the industry who have an inordinate amount of power ahead of you and knowledge and all sorts of resources at their disposal. And you can just call bullshit on that. And that was in extremely empowering and motivating for us in the early days. Um, I think as you start to become successful and you then have a live business to worry about, I guess that's the moment that the fun stops and the business begins. Yeah, uh, you really need to figure out shit. We've we've got a we've got a, a promise to deliver on here. It's no longer about creating; it's about delivering. And when you get into that delivery mindset, under underestimating that. Um, you know, can can really lead to the detriment of the business. Mm. So, not as much fun, I guess, is the key point mm. on that. And I guess talking, just reiterating what he said earlier around where you were, you were kind of backwards against the wall. You had a mortgage, you had a kid on the way, yeah. uh, a wife. You sort of, I'd imagine, you almost have an extra drive, right, to make it work. Because you go, if I don't, I'm kind of back to square one. So, yeah, yeah, that uh, look. Thankfully, thankfully, and I admire my wife immensely, you know, she was such a, a guiding force and a supporter of, of what I think I couldn't have done it. I definitely could not have done it without her support. Um, you know, she she is very um, anti-work for, for financial outcome or financial gain. It's very much about, you know, if your life's work is really about um, a contribution, then you should enjoy what you do and contribute something positive to society. Very much her ethos. And so seeing the shift in my mood and my abilities going from working in a corporate uh, job to doing my own thing, she was very supportive of that. So thankfully, I didn't have the pressure from from the partner. Um, but there was that, that kind of... Um, personal best and chasing that personal best um i think we celebrated the milestone probably about six months ago when we finally got to parity on what our salaries were prior to leaving the corporate world right um that was that's a long journey um you need to be prepared for that and i guess it's limited lifestyle to an extent but for the right reasons your motivation needs to be on building value in the business and if you do the job really well of solving the problem financial gain should come um, but it's about tempering your expectations. As your friends start driving around in their Beamers and Mercs and getting houses and all that sort of stuff, you've got to stay the course and 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 trust in the fact that you're building real value in a business that's solving a real problem. Um, and that should hopefully uh, result in some gain later on down the track. 
Mm, spot on. It's kind of that old cliche, right? 10 years of hard work is an overnight success. <laughs> spot on. So, <laughs> spot on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, one of the things I really want to ask you that came up in my research is I understand early on you did meetings in different cafes around Sydney. Yeah. And now your meeting room's actually named after those cafes. Tell me about that. How do, what's the story behind that? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, back to the time when we were creating and we were something that we weren't, um, you know, when we'd hand out our office works printed business cards, we needed to find a place to meet people because we didn't have an office space, right? So uh, the hustle was real and we'd meet people in, in coffee shops. But I also guess, you know, the safe space for Will and I to do our best work was over a cup of coffee, um, shooting the shit and kind of debating what we needed to get done next. Um, so a lot of the, the kind of defining moments of the company happened in, in coffee shops. Um, and so some of those are like Clink on Clarence Street in Sydney's CBD, amazing coffee and an amazing space to meet with an inspiring space. Um, you know, we, we secured our seed investment in that cafe. Um, you know, we, we forged our, our very first kind of uh, business plan in that cafe. And I think, you know, we, we picked up so many different um you know, new things to do from just by sitting in that cafe, drinking coffee and, and kind of planning things out. So we thought, you know, what better way to frame the meeting rooms that you have within your company, which are there to do the same things, you know, forge the future of the company um, through collaboration than, than, you know, by naming them after the cafes that we started the business in. Mm. No, I love that. It's it's a really external way of looking at things because if I compare it to the Unilever's or the Procter & Gamble's, they call their meeting rooms their products. Their brands, yep. generally their meeting rooms, a very a very internal way of looking at things. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, but it does, you know, like we've moved office to office, and some office spaces have more meeting rooms, and some have less. We're currently in an office space that has less meeting rooms, and the names of cafes that made their way over were, um, you know, the two primary ones that we have here in Pitt Street is Clink and Mecca. Yeah. So a lot of people that don't don't know the backstory, and you'd be surprised how many employees don't know the backstory. They walk into Mecca thinking it's something else completely. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, got to work on our cafe name. Yeah, nice, nice. And and, and what's what's on the horizon for Shipit for the next two three years in this changing world? What what are some of your focuses? So if I if I bring us back to our vision and our mission, right? So our mission is to revolutionise how we send anything to anyone anywhere. It's it's a very big, um, you know. A very, very big and somewhat ambiguous statement, but I think that's fitting for anything which is a mission. You know, you want to be determined to think as big as you can. But our vision of the world is, you know, um, e-commerce will continue to grow. Um, and as e-commerce becomes, you know, 50% of every dollar that's spent in retail, what that will do to our streets, what that will do to our environment, what that will do to our, our kind of personal lives will be a completely different reimagining of the future if we're successful. So our vision of the future is where we're connecting the logistics infrastructure that exists in the world today and making it easier and more cost-effective and more delightful uh, to deliver products to people in a way that reduces waste in a sustainable fashion. So what comes next for us is really furthering our journey toward that. The beauty of that mission is it's going to be a long time before it's solved. Um, and so that means spreading the gospel of ship it into more markets around the world to serve more customers. But separate to that, it's also improving the way that the market does what it does today. 
So more deeply partnering with our retail customers, more deeply partnering with our carrier partners, connecting things together in a lot more um, sustainable ways to reduce waste. That's what's coming next for us. Yeah, exciting. I think particularly with COVID, one of the big things that I've been fascinated by is the airtime that supply chain is now getting. And I'm sure you probably see yeah. it from your time in FMCG as well, where often supply chain was sort of afterthought because it was so brand focused. Which I think now, particularly with with longer lead times and and shipping delays and things, supply chain is getting a lot of airtime, which I imagine probably helps you in terms of furthering your conversations, right? With the whether it's the investor world or future customers and the like. Well, yeah, I mean, look, what, what what it's done is it's taken. So logistics has predominantly been or supply chain has predominantly been a b2b problem right and in the b2b space from fmcg days supply chain is all about on time in full delivery mm. right a 99.9 percent die-fot rate is what you need to achieve and if you don't achieve that you've completely failed and there are financial penalties yeah. and all the like yep. there are so when I entered the consumer space logistics is the only way that an online uh, purchase gets to your doorstep now 60 odd percent of those deliver are delivered on time that's a vast difference to what the b2b world is used to what covid's done is it's accelerated adoption of online shopping to you know double the population that used to buy online and what that means is you now have this overt reliance on on logistics to buy what you want to consume and with that comes this responsibility of reliability and so what you're going to start seeing is logistics become more of a headline um, and just like people jump on twitter and complain about shitty fail which is the nice <laughs> term for city rail when they're a minute yep. late um we'll have to see the same thing happen in logistics so it's only a matter of time before that happens um and i think we're quite fortunate to have entered the market at the right time before logistics sort of became this this center of attention mm, spot on now now let's move on to the final segment of the show which is called the the, the rapid fire sprint really to understand some of your habits and inspirations, Rob. Um, is there one investment yeah. you've made that you consider the best in your life? Oh, I got asked this question the other day and I answered it and I probably, uh, I, won't, I won't be able to answer it <laughs> the same way. Um, you know what? I it's It's got to be my AirPods. I think I get the most use out of those things. Um I think it's money well spent. I'm going off the same pair I bought four years ago and I use them religiously many times a day. Um, yeah. Oh, I love it. Out of all the guests on the show, that's the most specific answer I've got. Very good. <laughs> um, is, is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Um, yeah, I want to learn how to, look, to be honest, I want to learn how to, how to balance, you know, work and life. Um, I think balancing the mental state is really important for a founder. Um, so striking the balance in the right way and learning those skills is something that I'm really keen to do. Mm. And is there one quote or person that inspires you? The one person that inspires me is definitely my wife. Um, you know, her resilience and her ability to be all things to all people. You know, I look at her as somebody who's a great mother to our children, somebody who's a great um you know, a, a great and loyal kind of um, business owner herself and able to do many things very well. Um, I think that's certainly something that inspires me to be a better person as well. Um, so unfortunately, I don't get caught up in all the platitudes and, and quotes that sit out there, but that that's generally my thing. 
Very nice. Yeah, I'm sure you scored a few brownie points there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. And, and last one, is there one thing you try and do every week or every day to get the best out of yourself from a, from a mental and physical point of view? Yeah, there's two things. One is exercise and the second is plan. Um, so every day when I wake up, um, you know, I, I, I do, do my exercise and then I follow it up with planning out what needs to happen that day. Um, I do that on a weekly basis on a Sunday evening as well and just kind of plan that out. Um, but every day having a very clear plan and making sure you clear your mind um, by getting your frustrations out and actually, you know, hitting the gym, super important for your mental well-being. 100%. Couldn't agree more. I'm actually about to hit the gym after this recording. So absolutely. Uh, well, that takes us to the end of the episode, mate. Again, thank you so much for making the time. I know you're a busy guy and Hopefully the listeners have been able to understand a bit about the person behind the story. So, yeah, thanks again and keep in touch. Mate, absolute pleasure. And if anybody wants to reach out and get in touch, um, look me up on LinkedIn, uh, Rob Hangozada, or, uh, yeah, basically just reach out, rob at shipper.com. Cheers, Perfect. mate. Thank thanks you. Thanks very much. There you have it, Rob Hangozada. As always, if you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps the show. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.